from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. At least 106 people shot, 14 of them fatally. Police officers responding to gunshots and being met with crowds hurling bottles at them. 17 shootings occurred and 24 people were injured in the last 24 hours. What was meant to be a celebration ended with a one-year-old boy shot and killed during a summer cookout. Nine victims fatally shot tonight across four boroughs in a recent surge of violence in New York City. Homicide numbers in the city of Milwaukee. Milwaukee literally have doubled in 2020. This is now a third week in a row where we have seen children shot and killed here. Children as young as 10 years old, 3 years old, 1 year old, and even this past weekend, a 7 year old shot and killed. Another deadly weekend on city streets. At least 9 people have died and 40 more have been wounded in shootings. Hi, this is new. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, chaos is in the streets of our American cities. Rioters cry to defund the police while tearing our statues down. Shootings are on the rise in Chicago, New York, Seattle, Los Angeles, and other major U.S. cities. So how do we stop this chaos? How do we restore law and order and quell the cries to defund the police and instead defend and support our men and women in blue? In the 1990s, New York City police faced similar chaos, and they brought in a new New York City police commissioner who revitalized morale and cut crime, achieving the largest crime declines in New York City's history. As Los Angeles police chief, 
from 2002 to 2009 in a city known for its entrenched gang culture and youth violence. He brought crime to historically low levels, greatly improved race relations, and reached out to young people with a range of innovative police programs. He is the very person we need advice from at this moment. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest and old friend, William Bratton, Executive Chairman of Risk Advisory Ateneo. During a 46-year career in law enforcement, he instituted progressive change while leading six police departments, including seven years as Chief of the Los Angeles Police Department and two non-consecutive terms as the Police Commissioner of the City of New York. He is the only person ever to lead the police agencies of America's two largest cities. I'm really thrilled to have Bill Bratton, who is, I think, one of the great legends of policing in America, a man who really developed an approach in New York in the 90s, took it to Los Angeles, has a really clear understanding of how to preempt crime and have dramatically safer cities. Before we get into the current crisis and what you would do and how you do it, could you take just a couple minutes? Because I've read your book, and I've, as you know, you were very generous and hosted me in Los Angeles and let me sit through a meeting of one of your teams as they wrestled with planning and thinking. You somehow, either when you were the chief of the subway police or then when you went back to Boston, somewhere in there, you got a notion of how you could organize activities that would dramatically reduce the likelihood of crime, not so much catching the criminals but preempting the crime. How did that all come about? This October will be my 50th anniversary since my appointment as a police officer in the Boston Police Department in 1970. In the middle of that extraordinarily turbulent time in our history, coming out of the civil rights movement, the assassination of the president in Boston, the next 10 years, we battled with the desegregation of public schools, desegregation of public housing. So my rise through the ranks in Boston was during that very turbulent era. But I've been a, a strong supporter or adherent to the nine principles of policing as followed by Sir Robert Peel when he created Metropolitan Police in London in 1829. And the first of those nine principles is the basic mission for which the police exists is to prevent crime and disorder. I think those words, prevent crime and disorder, are the most important words and foundation of policing in the Western world. And I was lucky enough to be exposed to that concept in the mid-70s as a young sergeant then lieutenant, creating one of the country's first neighborhood policing programs in very troubled crime-ridden areas of Boston. Success in reducing crime and getting cops involved with neighborhoods and neighborhood residents once again led to my promotion in 1980 after 10 years in the Boston Police Department as the superintendent-in-chief to try and implement that system citywide. So I also was exposed to George Kelling and James Wilson, those two great individuals, and their concept of broken windows, quality of life enforcement, in 1982-83 when they came out with their famous Atlantic article. I had lived it in the 70s, and it resonated with me. And what resonated with me was the importance of the idea of dealing not only with crime, major crime, violent crime, but at the same time dealing with 
quality of life crime, the so-called broken windows that Wilson and Kelly referred to. And in the 70s and 80s in America, we were fighting a losing battle trying to deal with this major crime as we were de-policing, we were de-institutionalizing hundreds of thousands of people coming out of our mental institutions, creating a homeless problem that we still deal with 50 years later. Well intended, unintended consequences. And I came to be a champion of the concept of dealing with both at the same time, echoing Kelly and Wilson's incredibly articulate and beautiful words. And so coming into New York and City in 1990 as chief of the transit police, 4,000 police officers patrolling the subways in the chaos of New York City at that time, a lot of what people were fearful of and not really recognizing was what they saw every day, which were these signs of disorder significant fare evasion, graffiti, 5,000 homeless people living in the subways, begging and creating all types of disturbances. And in their daily commute, five million New Yorkers just feeling unsafe. In a system which had, at that time, a lot of crime, 100 deaths every year in the subway, 20 some odd murders, an average of 60 or 70 crimes, uh, robberies, assaults each day, in a population of five million. Meanwhile, on the streets, 2,243 murders, 5,000 people shot, 100,000 robberies, 100,000 burglaries, 110,000 stolen cars. But in addition to all that serious crime was the chaos of the graffiti, the aggressive begging, the squeegee pests that had become so symbolic. The signs in car windows, no radio in car, because at that time there was an epidemic of stealing radios from cars. So in summary, you that I'm a strong adherent that the role of police is not to just to respond to crime, not to measure our response time, number of arrests, number of clearances, but more importantly, to prevent it, to find ways. And I have found, and the success I believe I had, was focusing on both issues at the same time and understanding the linkage that uncontrolled societal behavior leads to more significant tolerance and opportunity for more serious crime. The CompStat system, the use of data and analytics to identify problems as they were growing so that you could try to prevent them from growing initially rather than waiting until they were full-scale epidemic. Time reactor intelligence, gather crime statistics back then every day. Now you can gather them literally as the cops are taking reports in the field. Rapid response, putting cops on the dots. What is causing that increase in crime or disorder? Effective tactics, and this is where the concept of community policing, the idea of partnership with the community is essential. The police need to team up with the neighborhood to identify what are their priorities. Are they fearful of disorder? Are they fearful of serious crime? And then another one of the nine principles of Sarabha Peel, the police and the community are one. They need to work together. And if they work together, they can effectively not only reduce crime disorder, but they can prevent it from coming back. That sums up the foundation of how I believe we should police. And going forward, as we deal with the turbulence in our society today, I still believe that those founding principles of the nine principles of Sir Robert Peel, Kelly and Wilson, and the wonderful writing and study that they did, that those, I still believe, the way forward. We're going to put the nine principles on our show page so people can get to them. As I understand it, you basically developed a very data-rich model that allowed you to focus 
on sort of the hot spots of crime so you could think through how to preempt the possibilities of crime occurring. I remember in the one time you allowed me to come out to Los Angeles and sit through the planning session, they were looking at one particular mall and how they could use police assets to just literally eliminate the likelihood of a crime occurring. So you're kind of preempting it, but you need the data in order to preempt it. The story, which may be apocryphal, is that when Giuliani got elected and knew that stopping crime was his number one test in terms of the people of New York, that he asked each of the applicants for the possibility to be commissioner whether or not they could reduce crime, and the other two gave him a crime's really beyond our control. And you said at least 10% the first year, and actually did better than that. Were you that confident because of your experience in Boston and in the Transit Authority, or why were you able to sort of go out on that kind of a limb when the normal model for people who had not studied Wilson was to believe that you couldn't affect crime. You could catch people, but you couldn't really dramatically change it. Were you surprised that it worked as well as it did? Because I think in New York's case, at least in terms of, for example, murders, the, the drop was astonishing and then continued all the way through the Bloomberg mayorship. It had really, truly become a radically safer city. Was that a surprise to you, or did you assume that was going to happen? It was not a surprise. I had the benefit of working for two years in the New York City transit system, so I was coordinating and collaborating with the NYPD, which I found to be an organization that was totally focused on responding to crime after the fact. They were an extraordinarily dysfunctional police department as it related to dealing with crime. They were more focused on their interpretation of community policing was on building relationships with the neighborhood and hoping that better relationships would lead to crime reduction. My focus initially was you had to get control of the crime first so you could make the streets safe for the neighborhood residents to come out into those streets to engage and interact with you and build up police legitimacy is the term we use now. And the idea of being able to focus on the prevention of crime, again, it goes back to Sir Robert Peel, but it was what I learned in the 70s in Boston with my neighborhood policing program in the 80s in Boston, heading up several police departments there. But also in 1990, I had the opportunity to be exposed to Jack Maple, a uh, lieutenant in the transfer police who, like myself, understood the importance of believing you could make a difference. Both of us have large egos, and we really enjoy dealing with crises. And so when we sat with Giuliani, predicted that I would get crime down the 10% the first year. I had no doubt of that because the NYPD was doing such a poor job of focusing on crime. They were focusing largely on community relations. They were not gathering their crime information except reported a couple of times a year to the FBI for the annual crime report. They were not coordinating between their 76 precincts and their 10 patrol boroughs. So there was so much room for improvement. Also, going back to my experience in Boston in the 70s, in my office, I had huge maps on my wall of my police district. And every night, I would gather up all the reports from the day, the previous 24 hours, and put dots on the map indicating different crimes, robberies, rapes, murders. And very quickly, you'd start seeing clusters, timely, accurate intelligence. Secondly, what I would then do is effectively direct police resources to that cluster. And I would give my officers detailed information about 
what is happening in your sector, when is it happening, and I want you to be in this area at a certain time because you might be able to detect a crime in progress or you might be able to prevent it from just your presence. And then lastly, the idea of relentless follow-up to continue mapping day after day, month after month. So what I developed in the 70s is what I brought to New York in the 90s, and Jack Maple recognized it instantly. And out of that came the concept of CompStat, shot for computer statistics, timely, accurate data, the idea of making police data-driven, but more importantly, holding the precinct commander, 300 officers under his or her command, accountable for knowing what was going on in their precinct, knowing what they were doing to respond to it with the goal of stopping it before it became 10 or 20 incidents, and then sharing in the CompStat meetings twice a week at headquarters, what were you doing? What's working? What's not? So the idea of transparency. Policing is a very closed society in many respects. Cops don't even tell each other what's going on. CompStat forced them to share, to be transparent, and to be accountable. So we brought accountability into play. And then Giuliani, in terms of the political leadership, willing to battle back against all those that were basically claiming that we were basically doing it all wrong. Well, it was hard to argue against the success rate that the largest crime declines in the history of the city in 1994-95. And until recently, until January of this year, crime has gone down in New York City for almost 30 straight years. Think of that, for almost 30 straight years. And it was only this year that it reversed. For many years, I always predicted that crime would never go up in New York City again. Well, unfortunately, the politics, the pandemic, so many things went wrong over the last six months that have been proven wrong because crime is going up, not only in New York, but unfortunately throughout the country at the moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. At least five children died in a wave of gun violence. In New York and Chicago alone, nearly 150 people were shot. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. All of these forces are coming together at the same time and making it very difficult. The ecosystem of public safety that isn't just law enforcement, but is local, community-based, and they too have really been hit hard. If you could convince the Chicago politicians to retrain the Chicago police force into a CompStat kind of approach. How dramatically do you think you could affect the murder rate in Chicago? Well, that process actually has been underway for quite some time. A former sergeant who worked with me in the LAPD, who helped work with me to develop a real-time crime center model after New York's original real-time crime center, which was the evolution of CompStat using more modern technology, we developed together a concept called the evolution of policing from community policing into CompStat policing into intelligence-led policing right around the time of 9-11 where we began using intelligence and the ability to gather data more quickly with improved computers and basically artificial intelligence that we moved into an era called precision policing. And I wrote an article for the City Journal, the Manhattan Institute Quarterly Magazine on this which traced the history of policing over the last 50 years and that evolution, where with precision, we could identify within the larger population the criminals that were committing the bulk of the population. 10% of criminals commit basically about 50% of crime. 10% of locations in the city are usually where about 50% of crime occur, liquor stores being held up, public housing developments. And there is an ability with precision to identify those locations, identify those people, and predict with growing certainty when crime might occur and to put your resources in there. Police leaders, you want to have the right leaders. So the Chicago situation that you reference, I'm very familiar with most American major city police chiefs in constant communication with them through Major City Chiefs Association, Police Executive Research Forum. So Dave Brown out there is a former chief in Dallas. He is wrestling with each city, like a human being, is different. No two are exactly alike. So you need a leader who is good at diagnosing that city's particular illnesses. Chicago is, in some respects, a basket case for everything that could go wrong has gone wrong there, in that you have terribly lax court systems. A prosecutor now who's part of the new wave of many of these prosecutors that being funded by the Open Society, George Soros' Open Society, with the idea of pushing criminal justice reform. We need criminal justice reform, but a lot of it's going too fast, and Chicago is one of those examples. 
too many people coming out of prison too soon with inadequate supervision. So Chicago has a whole mix of issues. And despite best efforts, and including best efforts that Young Saj and I talked about, who developed that precision policing program with me in Los Angeles, he's been there advising that department for several years. He's probably one of the top experts in the country on CompStat and its evolution into predictive policing. It's taking advantage of artificial intelligence. And they're still having great difficulties there. And so what's going on in America today is just think of all these major cities as all these, it's kind of like all these initiatives to find a vaccine for coronavirus. Every one of these major cities, whether it's Portland, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, they are all basically petri dishes in which police leaders, in some respects, very capable leaders and others very poor, are wrestling with variations of the disease. I'd like to think that in my experience, in all the departments I led, one of my, I think my skills is I surround myself with very smart people who I listen to, the Jack Maples of the world, the John Timonies, the Charlie Becks, and using the CompStat model, using the broken windows concept of dealing with crime and disorder at the same time, that understanding how much medicine needs to be applied to the patient. Because like a doctor, with the new vaccines they're going to develop, those vaccines, some of them may not work. Some of them, like the first effort at dealing with polio back in the 50s, killed people. So the idea is, as a police chief, trying to, in my case, when I went to New York recently in 2014, could I safely reduce some of the quality of life enforcement? Could I safely reduce the number of people we were sending to jails? Could I reduce summonses in favor of admonitions? Could I reduce criminal summonses in favor of civil summonses? to see if I could find a way where the patient was responding well, meaning the community of New York, to reduce medicine, in my case enforcement, without a resultant resurgence of the virus. What we have seen in New York, and I think around the country, as many of these criminal justice reform movements have gone too fast, too large a fashion in so many cities, we're seeing effectively the crime virus, the disorder virus, that we thought we had corrected significantly in the 90s coming back. And now we have a new generation of doctors trying to learn from the successes of the past and modify it to this new virus that we're dealing with. And the new virus is this idea of these demonstrations that well-intended, I'm a supporter of criminal justice reform, but too quickly get out of control, taken over by anarchists, taken over by demonstrators who are not demonstrating legitimately for a cause or an issue, but are there really to go after government, go after police. And police, unfortunately, have become the peck's bad boy of government. So many responsibilities have been put on our shoulders as government has ineffectively dealt with them over the years that policing may basically become the dumping ground of failed government policies. Can't deal with the homeless, give it to the police. Can't deal with the narcotics problem, give it to the police. Can't deal with the emotionally disturbed, give it to the police. And we're understanding now that the police can't basically, we're general practitioners. Some of these problems need specialists. So as we're moving forward, we're getting into the catchphrase of defund the police, which has become the new buzzword. You know New York pretty darn well. What do you think will be the impact of de Blasio's both cutting a billion dollars from the budget and canceling the July class of 1100? Police recruits. How does that affect? 
We're already seeing the effect of it in terms of the impact on morale of the offices. The police union has been coming out with full-page ads in the New York papers talking about the impact of all these cuts. And if I could just briefly read a couple of lines from that ad, you blame police officers on the street for your quota-driven stop question frisk policies. You decriminalize public consumption of alcohol, public urination, unreasonable noise. You parole violent criminals, including cop killers, onto our streets. You release half the population of Rikers Island, the city jail. You ordered us to enforce your social distancing regulations without any guidance, then blamed us for the backlash. In the era of coronavirus, that's another responsibility, unfortunately, was early on dumped on the police enforcing social distancing guidelines, even as they wanted us to step away from stop, question, and frisk. So on the one hand, they don't want us dealing with social disorder. On the other hand, they now want us to be as intrusive dealing with social distancing. Once again, where government and government leadership is setting the police up for confrontation. And so in the case of New York, which you've referenced, what we now have is a demoralized police force, a dismayed police force, a derided police force, a defunded police force, a diminished police force, a depressed police force, and one that is significantly disengaged from disorder. And it is a diminished police force in terms of its capacities and capabilities. And as recently as yesterday, the Wall Street Journal had an article as part of the budget crisis the city is facing, a seven or $8 billion shortfall that was kind of justification for the billion-dollar cut in the police budget. The city is no longer going to spend funds on cleaning up graffiti. One of the broken windows that George Kelling and I saw as incredible signs of lack of control of government over neighborhoods. You have that in Rome, that where you spend time in terms of graffiti, marring even some of the most beautiful buildings in the world. So imagine what New York's going to look like in a year where they no longer clean up graffiti on the highways and on buildings around the city. The great mosaic that New York is, looking like a stained glass window in a church, slowly they're breaking out all those stained glass windows that the police will no longer be involved in homeless issues. Police increasingly are not going to be involved in dealing with the emotionally disturbed. Responsibilities that we've developed some skills at, but the problems have gotten so immense and do require partnership with other government agencies. So we have a major experiment underway in cities across America, and we're going to see what the impact will be. My own sense is one of pessimism, because I don't think this idea of defunding the police, taking funds and resources from the police to apply them elsewhere, I think government is going to very quickly find that the police were the most effective way to deal with these problems. And at a time of budget crises, it's not the time to be defunding the police. To the extent that, with the exception of some radicals, most political leaders on both sides of the aisle have run away from the concept of taking money away from the police. And if we think of the defund, it's a catchy political phrase, but it actually has four elements to it. There are those that use the term to talk about reforming the police. Well, that's what I am. I'm a police reformer. I've been doing it for 50 years. There are those who want to dismantle the police, and we're going to see how that's going to work out in Minneapolis. Those that want to abolish the police, the far-left, super-radical characters that don't like government at all, that like to abolish government. And then there is the defund, the idea that a budget crisis is going to require some surgical reduction of police responsibilities and money. So we've got a phenomenal number of experiments underway around the country as all these different ideas about what does defunding actually mean. The alignment of resources back to schools, back to health agencies. I'm not optimistic about the success of a lot of these initiatives. Some will work, 
some clearly will not. But in the short term, it's all happening too fast. And that's evidenced by the rising crime in American cities and the rising disorder. I keep going back to crime and disorder. The two of them are linked. And 50 years into this, the country has still not learned that. I think three weekends ago, 152 Americans were shot in one weekend in New York and Chicago. But why do you think it's so hard for people to figure out that that ain't working? You know, Newt, I wish I had the answers for that. We're caught up in this moment in terms of the well-intended effort to finally for blacks and increasingly now with the growing Latino population to fulfill the promise of founding the idea of everybody equal before the law. But the distortion of some of the reality of life in the inner city, life in large areas, life in minority communities, it's just too much churning. When I talk about the churning, you certainly understand this, the idea of we're not only in the midst of the racial reform crises, we're in the midst of the economic crises, the medical crises, the international crises, the tensions growing. You've been around a long time, as I've been around for a long time, and I thought coming out of the 70s, I'd never see the like of the 60s and 70s again. In many respects, we're seeing it on steroids right now. And I don't think anybody has, at this particular point in time, a clear idea of how to address all these issues. And so in many cities, a significant part of the population, particularly a minority population, but what is different this time than I think in previous times is the in what is thought to be a racial justice issue for blacks and Latinos, the huge numbers of whites that have turned out in these demonstrations in New York, the majority of the people in these demonstrations are white, younger people, the newer generation, the millennials, if you will. And where did their anger come from around these issues? And that's something I don't think anybody can figure that, that this was like you were dealing with an illness on the one hand in terms of the blacks and Latinos and their grievances against the police. And then when that began to erupt, all of a sudden out of seemingly nowhere came this new generation of whites, younger people who are as angry as the police as the blacks and Latinos. Where that came from, I think, is largely the impact of social media, something that we didn't deal with in the 70s, 80s, 90s, began to deal with in the 21st century. And that's the other storm, if you will, that churns all of this social media, the fact that we are all connected every day and we almost every day overdose on our respective issues that all of us are having a hard time keeping up with the maelstrom that's been created. It's doubly interesting to me because you have coming right off of demonstrations and looting and buildings being burned down, you have the city council in Minneapolis behaving as though none of that had happened. The worst damage in an American city since the riots in Los Angeles, the damage in Minneapolis is, in many respects, been underplayed. The largest damage to an American city by any riot, with the exception of Los Angeles. And the city council's reaction is to decide they're going to replace the police department with some kind of brand new, about-to-be-invented community public safety system, which strikes me as an invitation for not just failure, but sort of a denial of the reality that there are predators, and that you start sending out unarmed people to deal with these folks, they're just going to get killed. 
one of the reasons that police had to be as assertive as they were in the 90s was that the neighborhoods, neighborhood residents, neighborhood community groups were not able to take on the drug gangs that were so prevalent in New York and other cities. And it's unfortunate that in many cities, cities in particular, but even it's the suburbs that gangs and other criminal elements that the public, as well intended and as much as they want to band together, still need the police to effectively get control over a lot of these individuals. So Minneapolis, I think, is going to be an abject failure as it wrestles with its issues in large part because they don't recognize that they're not going to have the money, despite all their best intentions, to effectively, in their case, they want to dismantle the police department and take a lot of functions away and create those functions elsewhere. That's extraordinarily costly. And they don't have the money. In the meantime, they've got an incredibly demoralized police force that's going to be dealing with still one of the highest crime rates in America. I keep going back to my point about too much, too soon. At another time, six months ago, before the economic crisis we find ourselves in because of the pandemic, a lot of these efforts could have potentially been undertaken because we were financially as a country in much better shape with best employment that we had in basically modern times, we would have been in a much better place to undertake these efforts. Unfortunately, it took the crises of the George Floyd incident to bring about the societal turmoil we're in. But trying now to address the changes that are being demanded, just don't have the resources to do it. And by diminishing the capabilities of the police at this time, they're taking away all the modern tools. They don't want us to use artificial intelligence. They don't want us to use precision policing. They don't want us to use facial recognition capabilities. They don't want us to use drones because we might spy on people. We're in a very tough place. We are America. We'll muddle through this one, not without great consequence. And when we come out at the other end, that hopefully as far as getting a vaccine or vaccines for the disease, Maybe we might also, with all these experiments going on in cities around America, we'll come up with, as we did in the early 90s with the concept of community policing, with federal funding that helped 100,000 more cops, with ideas such as ComStat, with a number of very good mayors, a number of good governors, a number of very good police leaders. In the 90s, we turned the crime problem around. We reduced violent crime by over 40% in a few years. And in the 70s and 80s, we'd given up hope that we could ever do anything about reducing crime. I still remember Governor Cuomo when I first started working with him as chief of the transit police, which at that time was heavily supported by the state. And he was being touted as a potential presidential candidate. And I remember he was asked about this growing crime problem in New York. And this was at a time of 2,200 murders, 5,000 shootings, subways thought to be so violent and unsafe made a comment to the effect, and Fred Siegel talks about this in his wonderful book, The Future Once Happened Here. The response of Governor Cuomo to that question was, well, maybe this is as good as it gets. Imagine 1990, if we had felt that that was as good as it was gonna get with 2,243 murders in New York. We got it down to about 275 over the last couple of years, but coming back again. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When I take a look at what is going on in Oregon, who are these federal agents unidentified in unmarked cars that are raining down on the protesters. Who are these people? Are they organized by and with the President of the United States? Are there more of them? The use of stormtroopers under the guise of law and order is a tactic that is not appropriate to our country. Portland, Oregon is not out of control. To be sure, there are some people who have strong feelings. I think this is abhorrent and it's a clear political stunt. And ultimately what I'm worried about and what others in my community are worried about is that Americans are going to be killed for doing nothing other than standing up for American democratic principles. How do you think the country should react when you have a city government in Portland that has, I think, seven consecutive weeks now of demonstrations and law breaking and attacks on the federal courthouse? and standing orders to the police not to be doing anything effective about it. Portland is a basket case. has been for years. I think there's something about the rarefied air in Oregon and Washington, Seattle, Portland. Some of the most significant disturbances in America over the last 20 years have occurred in those two states, in those cities, whereas other American cities have had nothing near what they've been experiencing over the last 20 years. There's something about some elements of the population 
in Seattle and Portland in particular. In Portland, tremendous tolerance for the so-called quality of life open windows issues that Kelly and Wilson argue that if you didn't deal with those effectively, you'd end up with both combination of high crime, but also the social disorder that we see that basically what's going on is these demonstrations might start off as peaceful, but they evolve very quickly into mob action because there are now so many agitators, so many anarchists who are taking advantage of these demonstrations to effectively come into broad daylight and basically try to accomplish their goals, which is to dismantle government. Portland is one of those test cases where night after night, where most of America has quieted down, you still have demonstrations, but they're by and large peaceful. But Portland is a special circumstance. The problem with Portland is that many are watching it in the sense of if the anarchists succeed in their efforts there, that might encourage anarchists in other cities, once again, who ended up being so significant in some of the demonstrations we saw earlier in the year in terms of the vandalism, the assaults on police. What just happened in Chicago, watching just on the news this morning, some of the videos of Chicago police, bicycle officers who, without helmets, etc., rocks, bottles being thrown at them by what effectively was a mob. The police superintendent out there, Dave Brown, wonderful comments from him. Mob action of a crowd or a group of demonstrators is not acceptable behavior. And what's happening in Chicago over the last couple of nights, what's been happening over the last several weeks in Portland, is not demonstrations, it's mob behavior. It is violence for the sake of violence. It is an excuse to attack the police. And then when police respond to that violence being directed against them, then that's pictured as basically police abuse of force. I can still remember standing on the steps of South Boston High School on Father's Day with Bob DeGrazia, the police commissioner, and we were being stoned by literally a thousand young men, fathers that were demonstrating against school busing, and where it literally turned into a riot. So I've been in receiving end of there with a soft hat on and the bricks and the bottles and literally 30, 40 police trying to protect the building with a thousand incredibly angry citizens basically intent on causing you harm. So I've been there and I can understand the fear that it generates and how quickly it can spin out of control. Doesn't the media have some real responsibility for refusing to report? Well, I think in the sense of watching the media at the moment, that by and large, the coverage has been significantly, from my perspective, as a former police official and one who basically watches it maybe through police eyes oftentimes, I don't think the coverage in a lot of American cities, a lot of the national coverage has been fair up until this point. The media is almost bought into the idea that the police are bad and all the good work that we do day in and day out or in times of crises kind of lost sight of that. For example, the idea that a lot of these cities now want to take school police out of the schools. First time we have a mass murder in an American school, the police have been taken out of it. Watch how quickly the sentiment will change. Because who's going to end up responding to that mass murder situation? It's going to be the police who were in the school at one time, who have been now taken out because they're afraid that the police might infect the students in an inappropriate way. The message that is being sent by the city governments that police are not to be trusted, our young people can't interact with the police. The whole idea in Los Angeles when I was there was basically bringing young people. They have five magnet schools there that had 
basically kids that would come to school in uniform who wanted to be police officers. Los Angeles is talking about doing away with those programs. New York City, they're trying to take the school police who are all unarmed civilians, vast majority of them African-American women. They're talking about taking them out of the schools. It makes no sense, but the media, unfortunately, in many respects in many cities, have bought into this idea that the police are bad, and until we reform them, we're not going to report on the good. And that's just the way it is in America at the moment. And you've been through an amazing amount of this. It's sort of remarkable to think about how big a role you played for over 20 years. In the process of writing a memoir, Turnaround was when I left NYPD in 96. I thought that was the end of my police career. I never envisioned L.A. in 2002 and then New York in 2014. What happened, in my case, 50 years of seeing the incredible reforms that were made and the deeply flawed profession and institution, which I love dearly, the reforms are not being recognized. It's like we're in an etch-a-sketch moment that all the positive changes that myself and so many other police leaders and so many cops worked to make over these last 30, 40 years, it's been erased. There's so much of what is being called for that the police need to do. Every one of those things is being done in New York City. Every one of them. But everybody totally forgets all that the NYPD has been doing to deal with homeless, to deal with the mentally ill, to deal with the drug addicted, to deal with the racial tensions. It's a minority majority police department, has a thousand Muslim officers, has 16% African American, has 20, almost 25% female, has every sexual persuasion that in our ranks out, they're not hiding, they're, they're out. And all of that's been forgotten. And I just, as somebody who's very proud, but very conscious of the flaws in my former profession, I just can't believe that how quickly the respect for police has diminished. I talked earlier about these young white millennials. Where did their anger come from? Maybe for the fact they weren't here in 1990 when this city and this country, when you were basically getting into politics, was going down the chute that we had given up on the idea of dealing with crime effectively. And people like myself, I'll blow my own horn here, that I always felt confident police could make a difference and one of the reasons we make a difference is because we focus on the cause of crime. There are many influences on crime. We see a lot of them right now, joblessness, the economy, certainly the illness, the virus. But the cause of crime is pure and simple. It's people. It's criminals or people in a moment of emotion and passion. And police can control that behavior to change it. And that's what we began to do in the 90s by stopping a lot of the street-level crimes we change behavior by controlling it. Challenge is to do it constitutionally, do it compassionately, do it consistently. And were we perfect in that? We were not. We may be over-policed in certain areas. We maybe were not compassionate enough. We were not consistent enough. But we were trying. And in our effort, that we made a great difference. We're an imperfect institution. I worry at the moment that so much of what they're demanding be done with the police, we've already done. But it's as if nobody's paying attention. If you go back to the murder rate in 93 and come up to the present, the programs that you instituted have probably saved in excess of 20,000 lives in New York. There's a decline of, what, 1,700 a year for the last 25 years. It's really amazing. You've had an amazing career. Let me just say, I've often told people, I guess for almost 20 years now, that if they read your book on Turnaround, and Giuliani's book on leadership, the amount they would learn about how you can take 
a bureaucratic organization and re-educate it and move it to an entirely different standard. And as a result, have just a remarkable increase in effectiveness. It's great being with you. Well, we'll be be a lot farther down the road, won't we? But thank you. This has been wonderful and very educational. All the best to you. Thank you. And now I'll answer your questions. William from South Carolina asks, what can be done to overcome the fake news effect on voters? There are three things. One, make sure that the voters know it's fake news. That's part of why we're doing an entire series now, a podcast on shut your mouth to point out just how far to the left and how dishonest the fake news is. Two, rely on the fact that things that are obvious and real get through to people. So the fake news may not want to tell you about rioters and looters who are tearing things down. But if you're watching the TV and you're watching them tear things down, you get the message no matter what the guy, the left-wing reporter standing there says. And three, you pick issues that people care about and you stay on them and you keep talking about them and you break through despite the fact that most of the reporters and most of the editorial writers disagree with you deeply. It drives them crazy because the American people generally are aligned with moderate conservatism and against left-wing radicalism. And so all of these elite people turn out to be an elite in their own brain, but not an elite in the country. Thank you to my guest, William Bratton. You can read more about Restoring Law and Order and his book, The Turnaround, How America's Top Cop Reversed the Crime Epidemic, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Henry. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. You know, this is our 100th episode of Newt's World. I want to thank you for listening, for emailing me your questions, and for your great interest in the issues we all face as a country. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
ChumbaCasino.com. No Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.